0: just have to remember that your performance cannot falter. You have to get up there and you have to be big and you have to be authentic and you have to really showcase what you know how to do, but you have to also understand that there are times when people will not listen. So in the sea of overwhelm, you're looking for those two bidders. The rest of it is white noise and it doesn't matter.
1: Hello and welcome to the Message Makeover podcast brought to you by The Latimer Group. My name is Dean Brenner and I'm joined today by my colleague Kendra Ragukas who serves as our Director of Instructional Design and Technology and is a real thought leader on the development of the content for our clients. Hello, Kendra.
2: Hi, Dean, how are you doing today?
1: We're doing great, really excited for this conversation.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Today we are excited to interview Lydia Finette. Lydia serves as the Managing Director and Global Director of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's Auction House. In addition to her role within Christie's, she has raised over half a billion dollars for over 400 nonprofits worldwide and is known as the leading benefit auctioneer in the country. Lydia travels around the country speaking to corporations and groups on the art of selling, and her first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, was published in 2019 by Simon & Schuster. And I've witnessed firsthand multiple times the power and influence Lydia has over every room she walks into. We are thrilled today to welcome Lydia to the Message Makeover podcast. Hello, Lydia. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Kendra and I have been uh, spending some time getting ready. We actually have listened to most of your book at this point. We chose the audio version. And, uh, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's going to be really great.
2: Yes, audio is definitely my favorite way to consume books nowadays. I can do it in the car while I'm working uh, in the office. So, yes, I was able to <laughs> consume most of it before our podcast today. Yeah. Okay.
1: Quick quick story for our listeners about uh, Lydia and how we first met. So, so as I said in the intro, Lydia is the, the leading auction bene, uh, benefit auctioneer in the country. And at least that's the way I'm describing you. I don't know if that's the way you describe yourself, Lydia, but I, I think you're number one. Um, and, and, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. And the first time we actually met, I, I looked it up, was at, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island in 2010. And you had been recommended to us by a mutual friend for the Sailing Foundation of New York event that I was involved with. And we were really excited to have a pro uh, because in the past at that event we had not. We'd always done it with, you know, a friend of a friend. And I knew we were in for something special when you let off the night by auctioning off a drink from the bar delivered by a a well-known man in the room. And you got somebody to pay $500 for a drink that probably... Well, it was a club, so it was probably an expensive drink, but it didn't cost five. It didn't cost five hundred dollars, and that's yeah. when I knew I was in the presence of 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 somebody who really knew what she was doing. You remember that?
0: <laughs> I do remember that. I, I remember that well. It was a really fun auction, and a lot of the auctions that I take, if you immediately ingratiate yourself with the crowd by doing something that's familiar to them, perhaps yeah. not to you as the auctioneer, but to them, you sort of become in on the joke, and that's that's half of the battle half the time.
1: That's great. I'll never forget that.
2: No, you were definitely successful because that was the first story that Dean told me when he said that we would be interviewing you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those are the kind of things that people don't forget, for sure. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) So. We always are interested to know how someone got to be who they are, and you share a lot of these stories in your book, but would you highlight a couple of them and tell us and share with us a turning point or two that led you to becoming the most powerful woman in the room, and as Dean mentioned, who has raised half a billion dollars for charities?
0: Absolutely. So I started at Christie's Auction House when I was 21 years old, and I talk a lot in the book about the fact that my parents weren't art collectors, and it really was the whole the whole journey for me started because I read an article about the auction world, and it captured my imagination, and as often things happen for me in life, after I have my sights set on something, once I, once I hit the go button, it's really hard for me to retreat until I've <laughs> achieved the goal, and so I think if I were to think about the two biggest turning points, one of them would be be securing my first internship at Christie's. And I'll encourage the readers, I mean, I'll encourage the listeners to read or listen to the book because that story is kind of sets up the entire book about how you kind of make your own luck in many ways and how by setting your goal on something and then really pushing to achieve it, you can not only empower yourself, but also you make people understand that you need to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And so I started working at Christie's when I was 21. And I, I took advantage of every opportunity along the way. And one of the opportunities that I saw early on that I became focused on was the opportunity to become a benefit auctioneer, which is quite different than an art auctioneer. You're not selling Picassos for $100 million. You're selling essentially things at an auction late at night when people are drinking, and frankly, they're not even interested in bidding on what you're selling. So <laughs> it becomes less about you know what you're selling on stage and more about how you're selling it. But because the way that I had been taught when I tried out was to do it in a very stiff, formal art auctioneering way, I would get in front of crowds that would completely ignore me for many, many years. And, you know, I say in the book that I was probably taking in my early 20s, 100 auctions a year, simply because I was so young, and I didn't have anything else to do. at night. So when they asked me if I wanted to go to a black tie gala, the answer was always yes. And even if that meant I had this sort of crushing moment on stage, that was fine, too. It was worth it in the end. And probably about five years in. So let's say about 500 auctions later, I was very sick one weekend and I got on stage and unlike in previous times when I had felt very sort of, I need to stand up here and be this very stiff formal person. I just felt awful and I sort of dove back into my most familiar personality, which is essentially a very sort of sarcastic, but funny and and always kind personality Mm -hmm. that sort of worked from stage. And for me, that was such a major turning point because I realized that there was a way to get the audience focused and also sell and make those two things combine and make them fun. And Mm -hmm. that for me was a huge turning point because all of a sudden I went from kind of dreading that half an hour, 45 minutes of being on stage to to doing, Dean, what you saw firsthand, which is picking up a dark and stormy in front of a room of people (laughs) and starting off with bidding at $10 and getting it up to $500 just by words, just by pushing the audience and influencing them and saying the right thing at the right time. Yes. And,
2: you know, that was one of the stories that grabbed my attention from the get-go when I started listening to your book. And in our client work, we talk all the time about authenticity and that theme really came through, especially in that particular story. I think your exact words were when you were talking about the average auctioneer at the start of your career was a silver-haired British man in a
0: tailored tuxedo. And, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I say that to everyone. I mean, if you close your eyes, even to this day, and I say this when I give speeches, when you think of an auctioneer, if you close your eyes, if you have ever thought of an auctioneer, it's either a cattle auctioneer, which is the person rattling off numbers quickly on Pawn Shop USA or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's you know the that you see in a movie, which is always someone who's British, always someone who's in a tuxedo, and there's just sort of this perfect arc to everything they do. And neither of those things were me. So that really set me up for a completely different type of auctioneering, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, that story of you not feeling well and finding that your authentic voice is what captured the audience And really helped you to further excel really stood out to me like i said because we talk so much about authenticity would you tell us a little bit more about honing that authentic voice and how it has made an impact on your success
0: absolutely i think it is the most integral part of selling and selling effectively because without authenticity someone is staring at you thinking you know why why would i listen to this person they're not even acting like themselves they're not selling anything through their own security. And so for me, the authentic part is what I always say when I'm training all of the charity auctioneers. I watch them get on stage and I assess their features. And I'll say to someone, listen, if you don't have a sense of humor, don't get up there and give me canned jokes. Mm-hmm. You could be a very sincere person. Use that sincerity is what sells for you. Right. And so I think that that is, when it comes to selling, even in my day job at Christie's, which is selling the Christie's brand, all I think about is when I walk into a meeting, I'm looking across the table thinking to myself, what is it about that person who's sitting across the table from me that we can connect over? You know, I mean I live in New York City, but I grew up in Louisiana. So the first thing if I hear someone with a southern accent, the first thing I ask them is where's is that where are they from? Because, you know, being a being a southerner in New York is a hugely different thing and anyone who's southern and living in new york immediately connects over that small piece. So just reconnecting with that authentic self and making yeah. sure that the person knows that you're coming from a place of authenticity makes selling so much easier. Absolutely. That takes
1: a lot of courage because uh, a lot of people are petrified of letting their authentic self show and, and you can't that that's that's to me one of the most powerful parts of that story you just told is you made it sound easy and you made it sound like, oh, okay, I just have to be myself. But that's a leap for a lot of people. I'm, and I'm sure you do a lot of mentoring today given your position within uh, within the company now. And, and I, I'm sure you bump into that too where people are just afraid of letting their authentic self come out.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it was funny when I was writing the book, I remember my editor saying to me, you know, Lydia, you work for Christie's, so you already have the gold standard. Write this book for the girl from Lake Charles, Louisiana, because you want her to know that she can do what you're doing. And it it was that moment. And I think in New York and probably everywhere, you sort of, especially when you work in a a world like Christie's, you know, it takes a lot to say. My parents were not art collectors, because I think that's the immediate assumption that everyone who works in this company comes from a family that allows them to work for this company. And I think having that conversation candidly and saying, look, I had a great life growing up my parents were amazing parents and we had a lovely life but you know we weren't flying around in private jets like our clients so let me be clear I work for Christie's I do not buy from my company (laughs) and those are two separate things and and so writing in my book that I grew up in Lake Charles Louisiana not New Orleans which is the immediate assumption if from anyone outside of Louisiana always assumes if you're from Louisiana you're from New Orleans was a huge leap for me to say that people like oh I didn't realize you were from Lake Charles not New Orleans and I sort of realized that I'd probably had never said anything about it because I didn't want to have that conversation at that moment. So absolutely being authentic allows you freedom because frankly, you have nothing to hide.
1: I love it. I love it. Uh, And by the way, I don't hear a hint of Southern accent in your voice. And I've I've known you now for 10 years. You know, we don't see each other a lot, but we've seen each other a bunch of times over those 10 years. And that's the first time, you know, when I was looking at the book and hearing you talk about it now, that was the first time I knew you were from Louisiana. I've never even picked up A whiff of southern accent.
0: I know well it's funny because I went to boarding school in Connecticut and when I arrived my freshman year yeah I went to Taft and every single time I opened my mouth my freshman year everything I said was repeated back to me which (laughs) as you can imagine maybe like let's go see the baby now or you know it would Uh sort of be this exaggerated version of a southern accent And, and so I think that You know, even without realizing it, I started to sort of sharpen the the things that drawl in the south. And Mm -hmm. I have a British mother, so she was working on that from a very early age. But listen, if things are going wrong, I will drop into that southern accent like nothing you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) I mean, I can be I can be the epitome of a southern belle if I need to be. So, um, it's very useful. Very useful.
1: (laughs) So, so speaking of useful skills, let's talk about another one. And as an auctioneer, especially at benefits, you mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, a lot of times the people in the room, uh, maybe you're distracted. Maybe it's, you know, they've been socializing and and, and have had a few drinks. Um, so you're often working and I've seen you work in noisy rooms with distracted guests. So Always. give us, give us your playbook <laughs> for capturing attention, which is another thing that our listeners, uh, you know, are thinking about a lot because we're talking about it in our, in our work all the time is How do you get people to listen to you? Mm -hmm. What are your tricks?
0: Absolutely. So my first thing, I mean, this is 101 you have to know your audience. And so, you know, the hour before I go on stage, I am assessing the room. I'm looking at the people. I'm trying to figure out what it is from the speeches that are taking place before me that's capturing the audience. And so, you know, I have a lot of tricks, especially in a room of people that I don't know. So my first thing that I talk about in the book, which very few people can mimic unless you want to gavel, in which case you're going to have to call me to get one. But (laughs) I walk out on stage completely prepared for what I'm walking into. I know that people are going to be talking. I know that they're going to be drinking. Yes. So what I want to do from the minute I get on stage is get their attention. And I do that with a gavel. So, you know, when we were taught to do it, it might be to sort of lightly hit it once. I slam it down three times yes. every single time. Um, and then it, everyone in the crowd almost like jumps yes. out of their seat. I've, but it I've jumped. I've upset. jumped. Yes. Yeah, you've jumped. <laughs> I know. Because think about it. I mean, you're having a couple of drinks, you're talking yeah. to a friend and then all of a sudden crack, crack, crack. What is that noise? Yes. And so, for me, not only does it act as a moment of getting people's attention, but for for that moment, their attention is diverted to me. And so what I say next has to be crystal clear. So kind of going back to what we talked about with the dark and stormy in the first the first time we met Dean, it the entire moment for me is about, coming in with a point of strength. So the first thing I always say is, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Sennett. I'm here from Christie's Auction House. And then because humor is such a huge part of what I do, I usually throw in a joke. And that joke is meant to ingratiate me into the audience. It is meant to make a joke about something a speaker said two seconds before me. But really the reason that I do it is just to make people think, oh, this might be a little different than other auctions that I've seen before. Or, oh, maybe I'll pay attention for the next 30 seconds. And then depending on what happens next, I have a couple of tricks that I use. Mm-hmm. Talking to the audience is the easiest way to engage them. Yes, People always think that they need to talk at them. When I get on stage, an auction is not supposed to be an interactive moment, right? But I will say to the audience a lot of times if I don't know them, ladies and gentlemen, you know, lot number one, I'll throw it out there and I'll say, I'll start the bidding anywhere in the room feel free to raise your hand and just give me a number. And so someone will raise their hand and I'll stop them and say, you know, sir, before you start or man, before you start, uh, master name and they say their name. And then I think of something that just comes to mind about like maybe someone I know that with that name or, you know, it. it's the name of a movie star, obviously always something flattering. Cause that always helps. Um, and then kind of draw them further and further into it. So by the time they're actually giving me the number, it's probably higher than the one that they were thinking of. Um, And from that moment on, that person becomes my foil for the rest of the time. Anytime something's not going right, I would say, Dean, Dean, could you help me by quieting the crowd? Dean, could you do this? Dean, I noticed you stopped bidding at 4,000 on that. And we're going to hit 4,000 here. What do you think? Um, Whether or not you ever come back and bid, your table will pay attention to me and you will pay attention to me. And so little tricks like that always help. And even to, to throw that out further, I would say that anything that you see that is happening in the room is another way to engage the audience. So a cell phone rings, mention it. Somebody yawns, mention it. All of these things, I know it sounds silly, but every time I see someone yawn at an early morning speech or something, I'll say something along the lines of, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. I'm not being entertaining enough. I promise for the next half hour, I'm going to really try to up it up, you know, or something like that. So all of a sudden, that guy feels badly that he has yawned and everyone around him is like, Oh God, I better not yawn. Right. Um, right. you know, people on their phones, you can point it out. Like there are just so many different ways to continually engage an audience. And I think that that's the biggest trick for keeping an audience engaged.
1: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about that a lot. You know, we, in our workshops, we talk about audience management in a lot of different forms. And one of the ones that perplexes most people in the workplace today is conference calls. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's a pretty big leap from your normal, Crowd management techniques, but you know, I say to people, if there's somebody that you really want to keep engaged on the call, mention their name a few times on the call. Not to put them on the spot and embarrass them, Mm -hmm. but if I'm sitting there and I just saying, you know, hey Kendra, this might be something that you're interested in, even if I don't Mm -hmm. ask her to say anything. As soon as Kendra hears her name, she's gonna she's gonna pay attention because. It might just be because she's afraid that i will call on her mm-hmm. but, exactly. <laughs> but but either way now she's engaged and i, I we're talking mm-hmm. about bringing people into the conversation the same way you are that's really fascinating i mean regardless of the world we're living in it's the, a lot of the same techniques work
2: yes and even as lydia mentioned if you're saying and you're talking to one person in particular their table's paying attention, and the same goes for a conference call. If you call them one person, everybody else peek, perks up because they're like, "Oh, he may be calling or saying my name next," so you gain yeah. that attention without even calling on that person. Yeah,
1: that's great. Absolutely. So let, let's stick with. Let me ask another follow up question here. You 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 talk a lot, uh, you write a lot about your tactics for persuasion, and there's some great stuff in there, and I've seen it firsthand. Uh, I've seen you extract money from a crowd like like, like I'm, where I think the crowd's dead and all of a sudden you, you, it's like you, you, you conduct auction CPR on the room and all of a sudden you bring them <laughs> back to life and, and, and there's another couple of thousand on the table that I, I never thought was coming out. Tell us about some of your best ideas for being persuasive.
0: I think some of my best ideas for being persuasive, persuasive really come from what we've sort of talked about in the first part of this interview. And and I think more than anything, the thing to always remember is you can use two things to your advantage. Silence. Mm-hmm. Silence is an amazing thing that people are so scared of. And really talented public speakers are not scared of silence. Um, and that goes with any kind of negotiation. If you stop talking, people have to talk for you and they think that you're thinking things that you probably aren't thinking so I do that a lot I mean you'll see me on stage whenever I start a paddle raise I'll ask for the biggest number and then I'll just wait And if I wait just a minute longer, sometimes it gets just uncomfortable enough for somebody to raise their hand that might not have raised their hand before. Um, And then the other thing I would say is sometimes leading the conversation with words and bringing people on the journey to persuade them. So Mm -hmm. giving them ideas for, for something for me, for instance, with an auction item, you know, I often have to sell things like a dinner at a place or, um, you know, a birthday party or sorry, not a birthday party, but let's say a lunch or a trip somewhere. And so I'll immediately say to the crowd, ladies and gentlemen, who has a birthday this year? And then you pause because people are going to think, oh, everyone has a birthday this year. Who has an anniversary? Or if, you know, I started an auction at the beginning of this year where I got on stage and I said, ladies and gentlemen, does anyone know what happens in 32 days? And of course no one did. And I was like, it's Valentine's Day and love it or hate it the person that you're with is going to want a gift on that day. So here you go. I'm going to line this up for you. So sometimes it's really just leading people through the conversation, you know, Oh, your father-in-law, mother-in-law coming to stay. Well, you have just bought a fantastic staycation in New York for them. So they're not staying with you. So kind of thinking about different alternatives and ways of bridging and, and showcasing what you're trying to sell, I think is a hugely, yeah. hugely um, advantageous thing. And, and something that I constantly do. I mean, yeah. you might look at one lot and say, Oh, I was thinking this would be like a really nice gift for my son. And I might look at the same lot and think this is a birthday party for your friends at work. And you're like, how did how did you get there? And my answer would be I've seen I've seen and I've thrown all of these options out and someone actually bid on that one. <laughs> yeah. So I think that both of those things can be really helpful.
1: I mean, what we're what we're really talking about and Lydia's has come back to this. in in a bunch of different ways, Kendra, is just connecting Mm -hmm. with the people that you're speaking to. I mean, there's nothing that you're saying, Lydia, that is like a one-size-fits-all approach to your communication. Everything is about figuring out where can I meet the audience and how can I draw them into what we're talking about.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that's also interesting in any Conversation or any meeting, going back to what I said at the beginning about finding that touchstone about being Southern and using that as the thread that I pull through. I also, when I leave meetings, write on the top of my notebook anything that I've gleaned about the person across from me. You know, ask the person asked about kids. We talked about kids for a while. They have three children. These are their names. These are the, their ages. And then the next meeting, whether it be on a phone call or person-to-person, the first thing I say is... So how are your kids? I remember one was going off to college the last time we spoke. How is that going? Empty nest? How are you feeling? You know, just asking, doing a little bit more work to remember something about them. Because I don't know if this is the case for you, but I have always found that deals work the best when I really like the person across the table. And sometimes I will continue deals that probably shouldn't have been continued for another year simply because I like working with the other team. Mm -hmm. And so I always encourage them to get to know people on a human level because If you like them, sometimes you'll find a commonality you didn't even know was there, and that will allow you to continue working with them in a business environment. Yes, you know, we
2: talk all the time about our different strategies for persuasion, and one of them is finding common ground. When you are Mm -hmm. able to find common ground and make a connection, your story and your persuasive
0: message becomes easier. Exactly. Absolutely. No question. And then it's fun. You know, who wants to go to work and not like the people that they're working with or communicating with? Exactly. You know, it's great, to, it's great if you know what's going on.
1: Yeah. Well, this is this is fantastic. Let's keep going here, Lydia. And we have five standard questions that we ask of every guest and, and a little bit of symmetry in, in the interviews that we do. And, and Kendra and I are going to alternate these these next few questions for you. So here's the first one. Who is your communications crush? In other words, who do you admire? This may be a, a mentor, a teacher, a friend, a historical figure, but when you think about, you know, when you think about a great communicator, like who who is somebody that you aspire to be more like?
0: I've I've never met her, but I do a lot of speeches either near her, or before her, or after her at conferences, and um, a woman named Sally Krawcheck who, Basically, her entire mission is to help women reach their financial and professional goals. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the one thing that I've noticed in my generation and certainly in my mom's generation um, is just a, a lack of financial understanding. I think in many ways, just because people in my, my generation were almost embarrassed to ask because we yeah. felt like maybe we should know. And I love that what she's doing is getting more money into the hands of women. She started Elvest, which is digital first um and it's a platform for women to invest and i just think it's genius because she's making a conversation which used to be used to seem scary not scary at all so i've never met her but i really admire what she's doing and i hope to one day actually have a conference that's on the same day where we're speaking on the same day so i can introduce myself
1: that's awesome that's great
0: that's
2: great i've jot i've jotted her name down i'm gonna be looking her up thank you
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely
2: So, Lydia, in your book, you talk about being comfortable with failing, and because it will open up an opportunity for you to learn and grow from that. You know, we've talked a lot about your success, and you have some amazing stories, but would you mind sharing with us your most cringeworthy communication story and what you may have learned from
0: it? Absolutely. When I was in my early 20s, I took an auction out out in the Hamptons, which sounds very glamorous, but the truth is that everyone leaves New York after the big gala season in New York and no one is interested in giving money at charity auctions in the Hamptons. I did not know this, and so I was very excited to have a hotel room paid for in prime season in the Hamptons, and so off I went. I think I was probably 27 or 28, and I arrived at the auction, and there were 200 people who were there. There was a huge tent set up, and the cocktails were all taking place in the back, and in front of them, there were 200 chairs set up, and when they called for the auction, after doing you know fifteen minutes of speeches, no one came to sit down, not one person. Um, and so then over the first like sort of five minutes of the auction, I think five people came and sat, but everyone else wow. continued having a very large cocktail party in the back. And I had about thirty items to sell, so this is a long sort that's, of hour that's a, and a half that's
1: a lot. Auction.
0: <laughs> it was way too many, and it was all art. This was before I really learned when i became good enough to understand what worked and what didn't i started putting my foot down about what i would and wouldn't do as an auctioneer because i getting on stage to take a 30 lot art auction in the hamptons is basically the equivalent of you know the worst career decision you could ever make (laughs) and so i was taking the auction i was just trying to get through the lots because no one was bidding and i went from a very well-known contemporary artist whose work sold for you know way below the estimate to a local potter like a um, a potter who'd made a dog bowl for the auction and so I referred to the the potter I said well a lesser known artist but still beloved blah 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 you know finished the Uh auction creeped Uh out of there yeah I got back to my desk the Monday following and I had a call from the organization and they said you know uh, there was a gentleman who was at the event who wants to speak with you and so I spent the next twenty minutes getting yelled at by an old oh, gentleman no. who was a potter in East Hampton about referring to him as a lesser-known artist. And I, I think I said something like, "But sorry, I think that objectively you are lesser-known than Jackson Pollock." You were yet. dug in. You yeah, were dug in. I mean, it was really it was not a highlight moment. But I also learned, you know, something that I talk about a lot in the book, which is the power of positivity, and never ever going to the negative, which I've certainly seen um, fellow auctioneers do in the charity auction thing where they start sort of shaming someone or trying to embarrass them and I understand why you do it. It's also an effective tactic, but I also realize that you burn that bridge pretty yeah. pretty viciously when you do it. And so it was a good lesson to me at a very early age about keeping it light and keeping it fun and always keeping it positive. Because at the end of the day, what I'm doing is raising money for nonprofits. So every quarter that they have is a quarter more that they had when I got on stage. And right. I always try to remember that no matter what happens at the end of it. That's great. Absolutely.
1: All right, question number three. Seth Godin has a term that he calls the sea of overwhelm. And he's talking okay. about the, 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 the noisiness of the world that we're living in and how easy it is for people to feel like they're drowning. And, yeah. and we're just, and, 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 and I'm sure you see this and live this too, we're all living it. And, and you know, what is your advice to our listeners about how to make sure they get heard in a noisy world? Because you're, you're operating in perhaps the noisiest <laughs> possible environment Um, you know, when you're up on stage with people who are barely paying attention, what's your advice to make sure you get heard?
0: More than anything, stick to your guns. It's something, you know, I have this exercise with the charity auctioneers where I have, you know, this is when I'm training a class of newbies and I bring them all into the room and and I say to everyone except the charity auctioneer who's on stage, everybody just talk. Don't, do not stop talking this entire time. It's completely unnerving for the new auctioneer because they don't know what to do. And everybody continues talking. And I give one person a number that they're allowed to bid up to. So there's basically one, maybe two people in the audience bidding, but it stops at some level and the auctioneer doesn't know where it stops or when they should stop it. And so it just becomes this sort of desperate, you see the the desperation in the auctioneer's eyes as they try to get the audience mm. on their side or try to get them and they're never going to come over and so what i always say at the end of it is you just have to remember that your performance cannot falter you have to get up there and you have to be big and you have to be authentic and you have to really showcase what you know how to do but you have to also understand that there are times when people will not listen so in the sea of overwhelm you're looking for those two bitters the rest of it is white noise and it doesn't matter So just do the best you can and get through it. And then your words will be heard by the people who need to hear them. And that's the same thing I would say.
1: That's fantastic. I love that. I love that.
2: Well, Lydia, we like to play a short game with our, the people we're interviewing and we call it thumbs up or thumbs down. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to give you three different communication tools or ideas. And I want to know what you think in the next five years, if they'll still be here, thumbs up, or if you think they're on their way out, thumbs down. So the first one we have is books in print.
0: I mean, I have to give this a thumbs up because I absolutely <laughs> hate reading books that are not in print. I'm the person who's still carrying around 45 pounds of books because I love the hardcover. I can't stand reading it on a Kindle. I just can't do it. So I need to understand where I am in the book and how much of the plot is left. And These are, these are important things. So books on print, two thumbs up.
2: Nice. I hear you. We, we agree too. <laughs> the second one is <laughs> just social media in general.
0: Please don't ever let it go away. I really love Instagram. Mm-hmm. Follow me on Instagram at Lydia Finette. Two thumbs up. Nice, <laughs> nice. And
2: then the last one being
0: video call tools like Skype or Zoom. Down, like under my feet. I cannot stand video calls. I don't understand why anybody needs to see me when I have my test. <laughs> Just pick up the phone. I don't need to see it. FaceTime is for my parents. FaceTime is for my children to see their grandparents. Like no more. No more <laughs> video calls, please. Nice. Great, right. so we have two thumbs up, one thumbs Did down. I, say, I want to make sure I said thumbs down on that one, yeah. oh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> yeah,
1: You made that very clear, you made that very clear. All right, one more question and then we'll start to wrap up and let you get on with your day here. So uh, you mentor a lot of people and, and we've talked talked to this a little bit over the course of our interview today, but just so that it's crystal clear for our listeners, What is your best coaching advice for somebody at the front end of their career? And it doesn't have to be somebody in your line of work. Anybody that you bump into at some event, they're starting out, they're young, right out of school. What's your best communications coaching advice for that young person?
0: Okay, this comes straight from my father. Network or die. The most important thing you can do in your career is to network. So put your hand out to every single person that you meet collect their information, put a note about who they are and why you know them and circle back with them over the course of your career. As you get older, you will realize that the most important thing you have in your job and in your life is your network, and you're only as good as your network. So if you're 21 years old and you're walking out of the door of college, meet every single person that you can because the greater your network, the stronger your connections will be, the bigger you rise in business. And when you get to the top, you're gonna be surrounded by people who have your back.
1: You're now my communications crush, Lydia, okay? (laughs) That is like the best answer. We talk about that at the Latimer Group all the time. That we we're very proud of what we teach. We're very proud of the content that we've created and the and the workshops that we that we design. But I say to the team all the time, the most powerful thing that we have is our network of, of friends and clients. And and we nurture yeah. that like like it is like it is gold
0: because yes. it is. Yes, yeah. if we were it on... is it is free. Networking is free. It's free. If
2: we were on video call right now, you would see Dean and I with a big smile on our face, Absolutely. pointing at each other, thumbs up.
0: But we Couldn't already said more. we already
1: said thumbs down to video call, so she's not going to. Yeah, us, I wouldn't even video. be on the video call because
0: I can't no. figure out how to work it. So no. I would not be on that video
1: call. <laughs> Lydia, this has been such a such a pleasure, and and this is a good place for us to wrap up. We want to be respectful of your time, uh, and and we just want to say thank you to you, and we want to encourage our listeners to check out your book. The most powerful woman in the room is you, Kendra, and I both love it. Yes, and and we have really loved this conversation, and we just want to let you know that we are grateful for your wisdom, for your knowledge, for your always great humor, and and we wish we wish you nothing but the best.
0: Thank you, Lydia. Oh, Kendra and Dean, thank you so much. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 reconnect with you again soon. Thanks, Lydia.
0: All right, sounds great.
1: So, what did you think, Kendra?
2: I thought that was great. She was so pleasant, and we yeah. connected to almost everything she said.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, she L- Lydia is a, a really special person, and I hope, I hope you and everybody listening to us gets a chance to see her in action because I've, I've I've never seen anybody own a room like Lydia. I mean, it, it is it it can't be overstated. From the second she walks in the room. You're like, okay, th- this this is some this is going to be something special. I yes, I
2: absolutely want to see her command an auction.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll have to make that happen. So, so we always wrap up with a, with a few walkaway points for the listeners. What are your what are your big lessons learned from our conversation today?
2: Well, one of the things that connected with me from what we do every day is 101, You have to know your audience. If you don't know your audience, you cannot connect your message. You cannot find common ground, as she had mentioned. You cannot make a connection to what you want, to what they need if you don't know who they are. So my second one, I would say, you know, this, we were talking about being authentic for quite some time, but I think for me, what she said was being authentic allows you freedom because you have nothing to hide. I love it. And I never really thought about being authentic in that manner. You know, we talk about being authentic in work and bringing Mm -hmm. that into your work life, whether it be through meetings or conference calls or presentations. But it also allows you that freedom of just being who you are because there's nothing for you to hide. And so I never really thought about the freedom element of that. So I would say my next point would be come in from a point of strength. When you're trying to grab your audience's attention, come in from something you know, but Mm -hmm. also something your audience knows. Where are they comfortable? Where are they? How can you meet them where they are? Which will bring you in that powerful point of strength.
1: Those are great, great points. I've got, I've got, I, I could hit on some of the similar ones, but I'm going to give you a few others that really struck me. She said early on, "You make your own luck," mm-hmm. and and that goes a little beyond the scope of our work as communications experts, but we're also business people and we're coaching people in their career arc as well. And you know, when she says you make your own luck, I, I think that's true. I think I think luck is directly correlated with effort and and follow up, and and she talks about networking, network or die. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my first point. The second one is talk with, not at your audience. Yes. And and I feel like the entire conversation with Lydia, she was giving us her inside tricks to connecting with people. And it wasn't just about auctioneering. It was about remembering people's names and their birthdays and the names of their kids and the things, listening for the things that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Like that was a, a tutorial in advanced connection mm-hmm. techniques, talk yes. with, not at your audience. And then the third one, which is completely counterintuitive, but I couldn't agree more with her. Silence is powerful. And she said, really talented speakers are not afraid of silence. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. Uh, You know, a lot of people out of nerves just try and fill up the space with more noise. and, And I think she hit on it absolutely perfectly. So anyway, those are great walkaways, great conversation with Lydia. And, and I think we'll wrap up here. So for Kendra Ragukas and our whole team at the Latimer Group and our producers and hosts here at Company Cubed, I'm Dean Brenner, and thanks for listening to the Message Makeover Podcast. The Message Makeover Podcast is presented by The Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, corporate training, and executive coaching delivered with impact. For more information on The Latimer Group and for more episodes of The Message Makeover Podcast, look for us on iTunes, Google Play, and online at thelatimergroup.com.